Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. Nico here, and today we're going to be talking Excalibur as well as King in Black number two. But first, I wanted to give a bit of an update. Now, one of my favorite things is when we cover something and it causes someone to reach out and say, Hey, I gave that thing a try. And thanks to our coverage of Savage Avengers, I think we've heard from a number of listeners, probably more than any other book, that now they're going to give this title a try. And that's definitely why we cover these things. So I want to thank you guys so much for that. Number one. Number two, I want to give a little bit of feedback we got on one of our pieces. We recently ran a State of X audio column where we discussed how, for a number of us, the death of the roster on an X title has led to maybe a little bit more difficulty following the fluidity of the narrative and really gaining an appreciation for the title as a holistic concept. And awesome listener Everest reached out and said that in a lot of ways, as a newer reader, that's a pretty helpful thing for someone trying to come into the X-Books. They said, so weird comparison, but it kind of almost feels like the Marvel Lego games where your missions take you with almost entirely new groups each missions and you switch the teams along the way, but you have a smaller group certain time and it gives you time with every character and to try out their powers and see how they work together. Weird comparison, but I like the shifting rosters because it gives me time to get to know everybody. And I definitely understand that perspective as well. So it's been really great getting feedback from everybody. In the last year, we've increased our reactions and our listeners and our crew so much and it's been an incredible pleasure to grow this show along with you guys and to keep hearing from the same people and new people this whole time has been incredibly rewarding now speaking of new people and old people almost no book better represents the depth and scope of the X rosters as they exist now as much as Excalibur does now in this next segment I lead a room of myself Arturo Dante Kyle and Evelyn and we explore the interpersonal relationships and ideas in Excalibur, whether it's the concern over an underdevelopment of Rogan Gambit's relationship or an eager desire to see the fascinating interplay between Megan and Maggie continue to grow. This issue had a lot of emotion for a lot of us, and even though she barely appears in it, somehow, Betsy dominated the conversation yet again, like always. Guys, we hope you enjoy what was the final issue of Excalibur for 2020. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Arturo, that's Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. This is Dante. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Inferno Magic. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Comic underscore Canary. And I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-H-2. 
But you know who you can't find? Betsy. She's <laughs> off somewhere else doing something that I guess will come up toward the end of the issue. Maybe. But until then, let's talk about the issue we're here to discuss. We're here to talk about Excalibur number 16 by Teeny Howard and Marcus Two, with colors by Eric Arseniega, lettering by Ariana Mayer, which uh, VC, for those of you who don't know, because I get this question a lot, this is probably like the most common question I get in the back room. Uh, VC stands for Virtual Calligraphy. About 15, 20 years ago, Marvel farmed out all of its lettering to one company, VC, Virtual Calligraphy. So all of the lettering at Marvel is done by a farm team who work very closely with the creators to make sure that everything fits just right. So anybody who was wondering why VC shows up at the beginning of every letterer's name, it's because they're Virtual Calligraphy and they do all of the work at Marvel. Additional. Thank you. Oh, you've been wondering this whole time? I've been wondering, but I haven't wanted to say anything. I'm just like, man, I wonder where that name's from. <laughs> yeah, no, it's Virtual Calligraphy. They are an amazing team that has been doing all of the books at Marvel forever, it would seem now. Like, I mean, going back well over a decade. Oh, wow, a decade. Um, a decade. <laughs> really a sugar baker. So... <laughs> Uh, now, I, I sort of love that the title of this issue was They Keep Killing Braddocks, and this was like the first issue I felt like a Braddock's life wasn't in danger. But we'll get to that in a moment. Now, this issue really sources out of the fallout of Ten of Swords, and the plot seems to be the Excalibur team has a lot of pieces to pick up. Now, before we can even talk about the issue, how did you guys feel about the end of Ten of Swords and sort of where it left the Excalibur team in particular? I know I personally had been very frustrated that... I'd thought that Rogue, Gambit, Richter, any of these major players in Excalibur, I thought they'd have a little bit more involvement in Ten of Swords so that they didn't left me frustrated. Losing Betsy was, of course, traumatizing. But, you know, there's nothing that classic Excalibur loved more than a knit-the-pieces-back-together arc. So I guess I was okay with it. What about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. There was a lot missing from from most of the team. Like Apocalypse played such a big role and Betsy played such a big role that everybody else just disappeared. Going into it, I kind of thought Richter was going to be significant. Apocalypse had taken such a shining to him. I thought Gambit's magical deck of cards that he stole from uh, the Starlight Citadel, I thought that might come into play. And Rogue being resurrected with like the Apocalypse powers, like all of that stuff just turned out to not matter at all, at least for the purpose of Ten of Swords. So I'm confident it will matter and I'm a little more confident in Tinny's ability to like go back and actually tie things up. So, you know, I'm sure all of those things will have a purpose going forward. I miss these guys during Ten of Swords and I know Ten of Swords was a huge cast and you can only have so many people doing so many things before it's just completely unwieldy. So sacrifices had to be made but in the wake of ten of swords without apocalypse you know you guys know i'm missing him big time but him not being on the board i think is giving us a little more opportunity to hear from where rogue's at and where where richter's at and and moving the story forward you know i i'm, I'm glad megan has joined the cast i think we're filling some gaps with some new faces and and i think that's a great move speaking of megan i don't know if anyone here remembers but my very first episode on this podcast was talking about her and talking about like all the characters that they were giving us like the background of in that like quick little meet the cast of yes. the Ten of Swords like the people you might not know and they like they make a big deal about Gloriana being there and like a background of her and stuff and then she just doesn't show up like I'm so glad she's showing up now but it just 
I was very confused and almost angry that they like they teased at us that she was going to like be there and then she wasn't. It really felt like a tease. Absolutely. Or a red hair. And to piggyback on that, you know, I really feel like Megan was missing in the first half of Excalibur. I mean, with so much going on with Brian, like, why, why aren't we seeing her wife, his wife? Like, why isn't she more involved? Like, you know, that was kind of a big deal. So, yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it's a huge oversight leaving Gloriana out for so much. I have to agree with everybody. I mean, I felt like the cast of Excalibur was just so underutilized during the whole crossover. And I really missed them. Even, I mean... <sighs> I mean, I know that that they kept pulling Jubilee in at really weird moments, but like I was expecting more from Richter. I was I was really expecting more from Gambit and Rogue, and they just weren't there. So, now, yeah. <laughs> well, and I don't know how many of you have experience with classic Excalibur. And I mean, you know, like Claremont Davis, that early days of Excalibur, where, you know, right after the cross time caper, they just sort of had a few issues at the lighthouse where they kind of took stock of how fucked everything got. And that was the whole issue. You didn't need more. It was very a sword number one situation. You just talk about where everybody's going to sleep and you're fine, right? Now, this kind of felt like that, but so uh, pleasure of pleasures is getting to edit this program, right? Not just being a part of it, but editing it. And the fact that so many of you went balls out nuts over the blob and uh, wanting to see him be happy in a recent segment, unfortunately, a bunch of it had to get cut. But then we see the blob as a bartender and like just hearing Arturo, how excited you were about some of that age of x-man stuff and then seeing some of it pop up i was just like tingly feelings all over yes i'm just waiting for the opportunity to bring up blood so thank you for doing that nico yeah that that to me is like one of the highlights of this little book uh i know it was a small bit but just seeing blob happy on krakoa serving drinks and the allusion there to him being sad about betsy that just oh that hit me in the feels and i would love to see them hook up when betsy gets back so did you guys like this little quick breather, this like space? I mean, ultimately, it turns out there's a lot going on, but the issue starts out like it's a breather. How did you guys feel about like the segue to a let's get stock kind of issue? I really enjoyed it. It really got gave us the opportunity to understand where each of these characters was standing emotionally. And it also let us move the story forward from Ten of Swords. It felt very organic compared to some of the other arcs that we've had with Excalibur. And I, I just loved it so much. Now, I maintain that there's multiple books at play here, and I, I want to dive into every one of them. But no, Dante, we wound up missing out on some of your th like th closing thoughts on Ten of Swords. And, you know, I, I don't think I've spoken to you since the great day Betsy shattered or so. So how do you feel about jumping back into, you know, this big Britannic saga minus the main character that had been the anchor for the first 15? Um, you know, actually, I think that it's 
kind of a smart play. We had so many expectations with Ten of Swords and what was going to happen to Bestie. We knew Saturnine was kind of plotting against her. Like all the odds were really stacked against Bestie. And I don't think anybody really thought that she was dead. And so knowing that, knowing that that was probably going to be driving Excalibur, you know, host Ten of Swords kind of kind of like uh, gave me a, a renewed sense of energy for the book. What what I see, you know, and that what could be a quiet moment in the first part of the book is really the, the characters being antsy and not being able to have a quiet moment because they're missing their anchor. They're missing their teammate. I love seeing that that's driving them to not just hang out and chill, but to, you know, find Betsy, get off their asses and, and you know, figure out what's happening with her and bring her back. I agree with you completely that we're really seeing them be antsy and there's something about that antsiness that like I don't want to get a brick thrown at me or anything but like I don't really care for Gambit and Rogue being married oh me neither can we talk about it guys Gambit has been so diluted that's my oh I I didn't even want to be negative on this I really didn't I love this this issue is great but seeing Gambit just (sighs) it's Logan Echo much of a wife guy it's just too much like he I I love seeing Rogue strong and and you know strong and making decisions and happy and 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 moving the team forward and and confronting things and like I love that but yeah Gambit just feels like kind of like her psychic and that's just, it's, it's he gets schmooped thing. too hard yeah yeah it's, it's too much schmoop yeah he definitely feels diluted compared to Rogue she feels um. How, how would you how would you explain it? Um, she feels Rogue, empowered to me. Rogue she, yeah, she like feels empowered. She feels comfortable. She finally feels comfortable with her powers. Yep. Yeah, assertive best parts version. And it it feels like Gambit just can't live up to that anymore. Like even as they were talking about uh, about you know apocalypse missing, like Gambit had some really strong feelings about that you know earlier this year when when Rogue was in in that coma, right? Like Gambit has history with apocalypse. Like there was an opportunity there to like hear some kind of perspective or some kind of you know acid from from Gambit or something, so absolutely something. And there was just nothing. He's literally just like doting on Rogue or not saying anything. I do have to agree. As much as I love them together, Gambit's character seems to have been sacrificed for Rogue's character, which I just want a strong duo, married couple, healthy relationship in comics for once. Whereas this is just, no, only one of them can thrive at a time. And that's not true. Well, and it's sort of that nature of symbiosis that I find Excalibur facing on like a regular basis, especially this issue. Now, Evelyn, you brought up something in the green room that echoed kind of a note that I'd had trouble verbalizing until you'd made it so clear. You pointed out that a huge part of this issue is the bond of motherhood with child. And until you said that, it didn't click for me how much of it is about motherhood and child. Now, you have a specific example, but there's also Jubilee and Shogo. And in many ways, as we're going to get to, I think there's a case to be made for Betsy and the core. But Hmm. now you had made a comment about how, you know, you really found something binding in Megan finally getting used and in it reflecting her relationship with her daughter. Yes. Okay. So something that I thought left, it almost left a bitter taste in my mouth where in earlier comics, when we have Megan and Maggie interacting, 
Megan is so insecure. Um, insecure. Yeah, I would say insecure is the right word I want to use. Where she's insecure about the fact that her daughter is smarter than her and is growing at a rapid or intelligently growing at a rapid pace. Where she feels very insecure that she's going to keep up with her, which I thought is very compelling and interesting. I just didn't think it was handled very well when it was written originally. So now seeing them together and this like just seeing the loving parents and the kid and seeing Megan and Maggie like having this like respectful relationship where it's like you're my daughter but I respect your intelligence like that was so great to see I just I loved it because of that specifically with their dynamic where I I didn't like how they handled it in the past and how they're handling it now I thought was just amazing but just the motherhood in general again between like Jubilee like that's just I I think it's really great to have like these healthy parent relationships because a lot of times you see in comics and in other franchises like oh I don't have the parents it's like oh my parents don't love me oh I have like it's it's a constant thing and so I think that it's nice to show that you can have this family and with Jubilee you can have this found family that even if you're not blood related you're still loved this was my first real on-panel reading of Maggie I know I know she exists I knew that she was intelligent but I couldn't tell you if I've ever actually seen her in anything that I've actually read so this is like one of those rare little uh x-men blind spots for me is is a lot of Megan stuff but Maggie specifically and she uh like she just stole the show for me while she was on panel she was just just so delightful. I want to see Maggie and Shogo and Amazing Baby get a, a spin-off one-shot and go on some adventure. Like, I thought she was just awesome. Oh, I know. <laughs> and like I think we all kind of feel like there's not enough Maggie in the world right like there's just not enough to latch on to to love so every little bit we get is really taking her a step further from April in Miracle Man which is the child of the Captain Britain-esque superhero and an empowered being that is incredibly smart right away and hyper communicative so it's really important to see that sort of determination from it's so weird to say but other super smart interdimensional babies <laughs> like not only that but she can still be a kid because at the end she's just like can i go play now and it's like yes go play sweetheart i don't like it when you talk about me this way (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, this was my first experience with uh maggie on page as well i i had known about her through the um the tennis swords handbook but actually seeing her being used on page was it was heartwarming and i loved her so much and I, i'm just saying i love everything today aren't i um that's true that is true um but yeah i really hope that we get to see more of her uh helping the team especially since it seems like they're spending a lot of time in avalon well and before we even get to avalon we have something that made my heart like Twitter pate. If you can even imagine it, like Twitter painting is the thing Thumper does when he gets excited, right? The the thumpy foot. 
I lost my shit at the X Factor report. Now, I need to point out that in these two pages, North Star signs his name North Star like he does calligraphy, but that's still not as gay as the Embrace Gambit and Richter share on the page beforehand, which I'm fine with. But this X Factor death report was like the tie-in of the century for me. This should have had a featuring X Factor blurb on it. I could not get enough of this. Dante, I I feel like this was everything we could have wanted from the promise of X Factor. How did you feel seeing them show up in paperwork? <laughs> I loved it too. Uh, it was great. I can't get enough X Factor. The, they have just been a really solid book and the cast of characters is so fun, so fantastic. We don't really get, of course, a little, you know, everybody interacting from the group, but it's so nice to see the different books, the different teams, the different mutant machines or what, uh, whatever it is they're called, like crossing over, you know, like since like the five being an X Factor, seeing X Factor and Excalibur. I love that. It, it brings a, a bigger sense of community, which is what Krakoa should feel like. You know, we shouldn't, the, the, the different teams shouldn't be segregated. So I, I loved seeing them there. And I, I just, yeah. I love that they have different purposes too. You know what I mean? It's not just, this is, it's not X-Men Red, X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold. It's not just like different flavors and combinations. It's like they serve different purposes. And there's just something so cool about that in this era is that, that everybody's got a different job. Yeah, like if a mutant is missing, I expect to see X-Force or Marauders. If a mutant is dead, I expect to see X-Factor or The Five. If it involves space, I expect to see sword and or cable. Like, I really do follow what you mean. And I think there is something so permanent about seeing a handful of X Factor. It's not even the full team. And there's something very definitive about it being Rachel, Rachel making an experience, and uh, Rachel making an appearance in Excalibur. It feels very right. And, you know, I'm all for anything that puts this many gays on a page all at once, because, like, (laughs) this is a lot of gay in one very small location. Like, this is this is some the village concentration of gay. And I'm I'm okay with it. Right. It's it's so fascinating because when you said they all kind of serve their purpose, I maybe hadn't realized how beautifully two had framed so many group shots. If you're reading the digital edition, it's page eight with the X Factor group shot. Then if you're on the digital again, on page 10, you have the Otherworld team of Brian, Jamie, and Megan. And just so many shots framed so exquisitely well for this book that yeah, I think it, so important. Yeah, I think I think the art is great. I think Marcus Toe is getting better and better. I, I've liked his style from, from the jump, but I do feel like it's, it's improving. Now, how did you guys feel about a lot of these framing shots and a lot of the bigness of this book? I mean, I maybe think the book would hit a little harder with a more sword and sorcery vibe but like i do think that the art continues to grow and expand as arturo said he's really building towards something personally i think the art is very sleek looking like i think it flows very well for what it is uh but i definitely would agree that to me this feels like a dnd campaign and I think it would be really cool for the art to reflect that. Not saying that the art isn't like isn't good, like it is good, but I think that 
it could be fun to kind of go in a different direction with this because I think Excalibur has that potential to go that extra mile. I can I, I want to throw something out there too. I think uh, there's something about this issue that with with the introduction of of X Factor on the pages with Mister Sinister and the little trip to Bar Sinister, it does feel like uh, there's a little more comfort and ease with touching on different parts of the Krokoan universe, right? Like post X of Swords, now it's like I'm not so shocked to see Mr. Sinister on the pages. I'm not so shocked to see Rachel. You know what I mean? It's And I, I think that's something that maybe Tinny is like warming up to and maybe we'll see more of. And I think that would be a welcome a welcome change. Because this is a, a strange little cast of characters. The way this team formed has been weird from the beginning. You know, it felt like Jubilee just happened to be within earshot when she got recruited to this team. So it's it's just interesting how it's shaping out and, uh, and seeing Tinny bring in so many other elements. So for me, I really like the the art in this in this uh issue i i really think that it vibes well with the themes of this this version of excalibur i love the the vibrancy of the colors that are being used i like how it almost feels kind of cartoony when they're in other worlds and it just it just I don't know. It for me it clicks. So I I'm I don't know. <laughs> I wonder if some of that is the play of the vibrancy against the line work. Like there is something where I feel like you could quickly take this line work and make it much more dramatic and much heavier with uh like a a darker style colorist, right? I feel like Marcus II's work with somebody like a Laura Martin who is responsible for a lot of John Cassidy's colors, right? I think that would have a very different severe look. And I, I wonder if that's even part of what this book is trying to be. You know, Evelyn, you said you were looking for something along the lines of a D&D campaign. And I'm wondering if this book is meant to have such varied styles coming together to perhaps reflect a varied experience. I don't know. I think the art in this book, the colors alone, like I, I don't want to like get too about it, but Captain Avalon's costume could quickly look kind of NFL bird team kind of thing, right? But I feel like there is something about the delineation of color and style. There's something palpable and exciting about it. And, you know, I, I think there's something incredibly dexterous about the use of black. Like, I don't know if everybody else reacts to the severity of the black against the red as Jamie is walking from one reality to the next, but it has a lot of the fury in it, and that's a very interesting iconography to be confronted with. So, I don't know. I really just, I can't can't talk enough about the art. I think in a lot of ways it, it could maybe a little bit be more dead on for me, but I think it's really powerful. I think there's something also about the other world or actually the Avalon fashion trend of that kind of like weaved fabric. And you see it again in Maggie's like little outfit. You see it in Megan's like bodice. You see it in on Captain Avalon. There's, you know, we talk about how like X Factor specifically and uh, and Sword more recently are like should win, you know, awards for fashion. Uh, but there's, you know, there is definitely some some style and some fashion happening over here in the pages of Excalibur that I think are, are worth noting. And I like all the, the strappy outfits for the team, too. Like the, the, the rogue's leather jacket. And, straps forever. Straps. 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 It's all straps. It straps all the way down. <laughs> straps are the new pouches, darling. 
I'm going to back you up because I really think there's also something important about the color trend. You know, the vibrancy with which Megan is presented with when she's with Captain Britain versus the shift in color tone with the pinker sky and a more soft muted red and a, a softer blonde on Megan instead of the severity of blonde, the, the shock of blonde that exists on the pages with Maggie. I think this book's just so dexterous because when we do find ourselves in sort of a, oh, wait a minute. Megan's a sorceress now. I mean, and they're even funny about it. She's like, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a sorceress. Like saying like, look, we're, we're bending canon a little bit, but that's okay. Right. There's just something so powerful about the, sh- the dynamic shift because I totally am on board with it. I go right into this magical fairy folk thing. I feel like I'm reading books of magic by John Day Ryber in 1996 with art by Peter Gross. I'm incredibly there. Right. And then when we jump back to Bar Sinister, I'm fine with it. That's just two gay dudes hanging out in a club. I and I totally think this book goes there. Returning the clothes they borrowed from each other the night before. Oh my God. (laughs) Clothes in Bar Sinister. I'm going to do this little reading. Why that's an awfully slinky little number to wear into this bar. (laughs) That was such a great line. Sinister just like, oh really? You're coming here in your little hot toga? Seriously, that's more draping than I've seen since Rami in season four of Project Runway. You walk into this bar in that outfit, bitch, you might get pegged. Right? And who could blame him? Like, there's something so expressive and free about this book. And that's maybe what this book has over a number of the other X books. I kind of just let Excalibur go where it's going to go. I just kind of do. It doesn't make me angry when Excalibur takes a hard pivot, which is why, you know, that this ultimately turns out to be what what appears that a number of the Excalibur team are doing a spell to summon up Betsy and instead summon a multiverse of Betsy's while, okay, we just know that it's a she we don't actually know that Jamie is looking to have Sinister return his sister, but it wouldn't be the first time that Jamie has specifically brought his sister Betsy back from the dead in the last two decades. It's kind of old hat for him now, right? So we kind of have a lot going on. We have several things kind of running against each other and it doesn't bother me. Like, I feel like Excalibur, of all of the X-Books currently, has that sort of dexterity. Do you guys follow it on all of this mutant is magic and then jumping back to, you know, playing in the Quiet Council? Or are you guys a little bit more like eh, they're losing me page to page. I was not on board at first. When they started bringing magic into the X-Men like in the first place and then when they kept doing it I just, I thought it was going to be really stupid. I will admit that I was not on board for this. I thought that it was really dumb. When I heard Excalibur was going to be doing it, I'm like, ugh, they're going to ruin my characters that I love. And then I actually read it and I like it. Do I understand it? No. But do I like it? Yes. <laughs> Well, I think it's cool. I think it's cool that we're building more, again, like we keep talking about this, about like the mutant technologies, the mutant magic, the mutant uh, synergy or whatever, just working together. And while I didn't find this little spell, uh, you know, to be super interesting or whatever, it's I'm happy to see it. I'm happy to see that that it's not just something happening in one book. It is something that helps define this era as much as Resurrections, as much as Krakoa itself. It's just a hallmark of this era. And it's, you know, it's a little weird here, but they're in other worlds. 
allow it. You know what I mean? Like they call the fairies and they're having the earth, you know, rumble to to summon Betsy. Whatever. You know, it's like, I, it's not this cool sci-fi precision that we saw in Sword. But here it's like, okay, they, they, they held hands in a circle and cast a spell. Yeah, I cool. think that, you know, the, the book is really still leaning into the idea of mutant technology and synergy, uh, but in the direction of magic, right? Because it took everybody in the team to make the spell happen. And I, I always yeah. like to think of magic as just science we don't understand. So I like to think of it as like it's a different form of technology that the mutants can do. And Apocalypse or A started the trend and in a lot of ways I think he kind of like set Richter on that path. And now we're seeing Richter pick that up and, and continue forward with it. I think that's great. He's actually continuing A's legacy now and really embracing it. And again, it just it, it's mutants coming together to create something or to do something that they couldn't have done as individuals. So I'm I'm actually really enjoying a different take on that kind of that same core concept that Krakoa is building off of. So if if you remember our coverage from the beginning of Dawn of X, I was a hundred percent on board with the magic in Excalibur. I absolutely love that they brought in the mysticism that has been hinted at in various other books throughout the past and it it just tickles my fancy you know and i love this whole high fantasy type of of story and uh, you know even even the spell that was used the diagram it's almost exactly the same as the one that was used for the external gate right yeah yep. so it's not like we haven't seen this before this is richter taking apocalypse's magic and altering it for the team's good you know we're all saying that we want a collection of all of the data pages from x-men but i mean i think you're making a case for the fact that there really is essentially already a krakoan spell book you know there really are enough pages with consistent magic across them and you know thinking about it in that way i guess i guess ten of swords was really about excalibur and, you know, we sort of knew that going in, but it, it, it was really about Excalibur all said and done. It was about yeah. Betsy and rejoining Arako and Krakoa. And it makes me think that maybe maybe Hickman said, I don't care how it happens. I just want them back together. And that's what I want. So do whatever it is you want to do. And that's how we got Ten of Swords and the sort of what, you know, I know, Arturo, you came out much more positive on it. You felt it was brave, positive storytelling. And now I kind of wonder, is Excalibur carrying the weight of Ten of Swords? in its wake is Excalibur now the sole proprietor of what Ten of Swords was peddling as the X-Men's new status quo. I kind of think it has to be. I think Sword is very quickly moving toward other things at Marvel in space. So yeah, you know, I wonder, are we ready for this to be the magic repository of the X-Men in what without Apocalypse might seem like in total? Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be, we're not going to see a whole lot of Krakoa. I think in Excalibur, we're going to see a lot more of Otherworld. We're going to see a lot more of uh, of all those different realms. We're going to see. I mean, we have a whole multiverse of Captain Britons. I feel like Excalibur is going to be not quite like Exiles, but kind of in that they're going to just be bopping around, and that's cool. You know, I think it'll be it'll be a fun adventure book, but I don't see it as being super super relevant to Krakoan politics and and kind of like the mutants going forward on Earth. I think Excalibur is going to kind of become even quirky well excalibur is what exiles openly like you know judd winnick 
said, Exiles is based on the cross time caper. Right. So like it really would be a homecoming for Excalibur to inherit the mantle of sort of an Exiles. And yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it could have a whole lot of relevance in that capacity, which is a capacity I also share wanting it to go down. The best it could hope to do is like they're going to ask them to go get Apocalypse from the, you know, the other dimension when they need him. Like I could see them becoming the big bus of reality. You know, wh- one thing I found, I find a little suspect. It's funny because you bring up Krakoa and Arako being, you know, reunified. And it again, here's another, a whole nother issue where we don't see hide nor hair of that right we don't see we don't even get like a an aerial you know shot of what the krakoan landscape looks like now like we've got this whole other landmass now here somewhere and millions or billions of i guess probably millions of other mutants from a different planet so somebody's got to tackle that sooner or later and i just find it funny that like yes this book picked up on a lot of threads from from ten of sword but that ain't one of them that is not one of them well maybe that may fall to X-Men itself seeing as that fragment of Araco appeared in X-Men 2. Yeah, I mean, I have to assume that Hickman was saving that for himself. Like, that really is what I... <laughs> I think that was all he wanted out of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He just wanted his island babies to, you know, make island babies. And when when you're when you have a goal, like you have an outcome you're hoping for as a collaborator, it can be really difficult. And so I feel like that Teeny Howard's story has has hit what it's hit in this really major way. I'm excited to see what Nick Scalibur without Betsy can do, but I'm also really fucking excited about um what's going on with Betsy right now. Those last two pages, number one, Betsy Sky Eyes are all I ever need for the rest of my life. <laughs> and then Betsy getting like the Star Citadel style migraine, super about it. Not that I like her in pain. I just love the visual. And then, okay, I do not ship them. I'm going to be honest and I'm going to like throw a chair through a window. I do not ship Warren and Betsy at all. Oh, I, I audibly groaned. I, oh I, I actually. You guys, that was I one have, of my favorite relationships so the 90s i love them together because they had both been through their body traumas and all their bullshit and i'm shocked to hear this well and i even love that that was kind of when they broke up that they even said yeah we had been through so much the same and we were both members of the hellfire club and members of the x-men it made so much sense for us to be together and now let's part as friends and like i loved their breakup even but like i've always thought it's too simple a read like i've always thought it's just sort of putting them together now admittedly i'll never get brian and megan in a you know thruppily happy hap with pete so like i have to just get over it i could be happy with betsy with pete but like that's me wanting pete to be happy so like i i don't know i don't know my my choices of affection for betsy's heart are problematic in and of themselves. But yeah, I don't really care for this, but I don't know who else you could possibly put Betsy with. Her only other major love affairs were like Phantom X and Neil Shara Thunderbird. So like, who the fuck else can you put on this page? Fred, okay. Fred, Fred. Yes, yes. 
Well, not on this page, because this seems like this is, again, like a different reality, right? Like this, this, like it seems like Betsy's caught up in a different, in, in one of these little else worlds where she's the Queen of England. So I, I'm interested to see what we're going to get, but I, I think this is the beginning of like, there, this is an alternate reality Warren, right? So what does that mean? Just what we need, another Warren. <laughs> okay, so here's my thing. One, controversial opinion, we can get into it later. Never been a big Angel fan. Ding, but, ding, ding, but, ding. But, oh, but two, me neither. But two, why does Betsy need a love interest? Why is this necessary? Or if for some reason she does, because heaven forbid someone be confident and alone, like why not someone new (laughs) like it doesn't have to be like the rehashed old shit every time but like why can't we just have a confident woman like living her life on her own for a little bit and being happily single instead of oh my gosh i need to be in a relationship so what you're saying you're hoping then is that he is just a very comfortably dressed maid i mean i wouldn't mind that (laughs) he's just bringing her (laughs) a a concubine i mean yeah, I would be okay with a concubine. Yeah, Warren like, Worthington but, the conch, absolutely. I, I mean, I mean, he is a himbo. We've talked about this before. Like, but it's, uh, I mean, just have him as like a side piece or something. It, he's not main man material. Well, I think Arturo's right. I think we're seeing Betsy thrown into a different multiverse, and y- you haven't even given Betsy a chance to like completely tell Warren off and say, "This is not what I want. We're done. We had our time." Because I feel like that's the place that Betsy really is. You know, we're, we're we get one page, so uh, get hold on and give her give her a chance to like completely reject any version of Warren. And I'd like to put myself on the record as saying I used to ship them. And that's why I was like, wait, you never liked them? Because I certainly don't ship them currently, especially now with Quanin and Betsy as separate entities. Like, I think the Warren Worthington of it all is best left behind. And I'm very excited to see him and Monet and their further interactions and whatever that may lead to. Because I think they can connect on similar levels, but it's something new and fresh. And I'm definitely more excited about that than rehashing this uh, this this chemistry. And I do want to say that like I don't I'm not like oh if this is where we're going I'm out. I'm not like getting 200% Franklin Richards over this. Um what I do more mean is that you know if you're going to use a love interest from her past as a visual aid to create this sense of juxt and shock who else can you use but Warren? Like, there's there's just oh, no yeah. one else. Like, who the fuck else can you go with? The spy she was dating in Captain Britain who gets killed off after a few issues? Oh, okay. Like, there's just not a lot of choices because Betsy's always been so pigeonholed. Now, I do... I, I can't believe you just said the magic word Quanin because, like, now I desperately need to see if Quanin figures into this alternate universe. Or I'm actually not sure it's not a dream sequence like sort of like the fractured realities are all coming together in her brain. Like, I'm not sure this isn't some sort of weird synthesis, but like, I'm with you guys that this is not like our Betsy and that's not our Warren. Not that I ever want to take responsibility for him, but that's not our Warren. So I'm not worried. I just, you know, there's poor Betsy has had such a limited amount of stories in her lifespan because the thing that made her visually dynamic, you know, the quantification Mm -hmm. is the thing that forever pigeonholed her to that one story. So this really is the first new Betsy canon in quite some time in a very exciting way. 
I fully agree with what all of you guys have been saying about how it's most likely a different reality that she's waking up in and she's like, what the fuck is going on here? No, thank you. And just from that final panel with that like royal picture, I'm just going to go out on the limb and say she's a queen and she's not going to be that mad about that part. Yeah, no, I don't think Betsy's ever had trouble giving orders. Nope. <laughs> no. Especially to girl. Lauren. No. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, we're facing a brand new age of Betsy and we've seen a million different Betsy's already, which I think is super exciting. Now, Betsy just went through a massive transformation. They siphoned, you know, the Quanon out and they gave us Betsy and they gave us Betsy as Captain Britain for or, you know, 15 issues of her own series. 14 issues, really. So if you guys are excited about some new thing for Betsy, what would it be? I think I'm excited for Betsy to make her own identity. You know, she was always Captain Britain's sister who then stepped into the mantle of Captain Britain. Then she was that X-Man that fused with that other lady and became a ninja. And sure, she stepped back into the role of Captain Britain, but this is different. Brian's never remade reality around himself. Other people have done it for him, but this was Betsy stepping up in a new way. I'm excited for a Betsy free of someone else's shadow. That's going to be a really exciting character to see. How about you guys? I'm excited to see more Braddock family shenanigans. Uh, I'm very excited for Betsy and, and whatever is coming down the path from her. But I've stopped expecting Betsy to carry this whole book, right? Like, I am, I'm glad that we're getting more Jamie. I'm glad that we're getting more Brian. I'm glad we're getting Megan. And, and I kind of want to see this book continue to grow as that, as this Braddock, you know, medley rather than uh, than. than kind of what I expected, which was, it's a Betsy book. Like, I, I think it's good. I, I said it, you know, when it happened, the best thing that's happened to her is, is shattering into a million pieces. And I think that's good for the book. And uh, and I think she's going to come back together stronger than ever. And it's going to make for a great story. But in the meantime, yes, give me some more of those sexy Braddock brothers. So you hope that the Betsy book is Braddock bound. Interesting. I've been sitting on that the whole time you were talking. I was just so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I want to spend some more time exploring Richter's uh, druidic powers and his uh, dabbling in the mystic arts. Uh, and like I said before, I, I really like the whole mysticism type of thing. So I like that he's not just limiting himself to the earthquake powers and he's actually learning to commune with the rest of nature. Yeah, I'm all for Richter. Yeah, no, seriously, let's let's ratchet up the Richter. I love him so much and I want to see this whole I'm a new magic guy go somewhere. I would agree with that. Like Richter, he's always been like kind of in my peripheral. I've never really like paid attention to him before this, before Excalibur. And honestly, like his relationship with the artist formerly known as Apocalypse, I really liked it. And I, that's what I call him because of that whole name thing. Anyway. I love it. I love it. <laughs> like I, I really appreciate their friendship. Like I think it's a really great friendship and like him, like desperately trying to get in contact with him just to say like, Hey, how's it going? and you did but I like that we see these new powers we see this new side of him and I think it can be really interesting where that's gonna go I really want to see it go somewhere dramatic like I'm, I'm always afraid that any one of these writers is gonna be like oh and my time is done bye <laughs> 
I'm, I'm going to have incomplete feelings. You know, we just lost Ed Brisson over on New Mutants, but like we've said as a team, it's not that Brisson wasn't telling great stories, but he was definitely not telling stories that fit all of the Hoxpox vibe. So, you know, I just don't want to see Teeny go anywhere until she's totally done telling her tale. I love Teeny. I I want to see her on this for a good long time. And even if not a long time, like I want her to be able to complete these story arcs. She's definitely like concocting. Yeah, I don't want Excalibur to be written in anybody else's hands for sure. Like Tinny is definitely a pillar of this era. I'm on record with having like some misgivings early on and like some trouble with Excalibur pacing and I know I wasn't alone in that but over the course of the crossover of Ten of Swords she really won me over and I've decided to just like let go and let Tinny and I trust that we're not going to go exactly where I want to go or how I want to get there but I'm going to enjoy the ride and and, and appreciate her perspective on, you know, she's she's never exactly what I want, but I, I hell if I don't enjoy it. I'd like to uh, preface what I'm going to say with, I love Betsy dearly, but I don't want the book to feel like a Captain Britain book. I want it to be Excalibur, and I want more focus on different members of the team, different supporting cast. Like, I want more of all the characters, you know? And, and again, as much as I love Betsy, I don't want it to be all about Betsy. I want, I mean, I love so many of these characters. We have... Make it a good ensemble is what you're saying we have a great ensemble make good use of these wonderful characters that we have explore you know explore the druid side of Richter you know let's let's dig deeper into Rogan Gampit's relationship because it needs some work You know, like I, yeah, and give me more of the, the Braddock brothers. Give me more Maggie. Maggie was so wonderful, and her relationship with Megan was delightful. I loved seeing Sinister's cape make a comeback. So, yeah, give me give me more of that, and like I will be happy. But I I have been enjoying the book and the direction it's going, and I I I like I like Teeny. I'm I'm happy with with the work there. Hey everybody, Nico here again, and I have a confession to make. I really wasn't following the Venom saga leading up to the events of King in Black, and, you know, other than the fact that I was told that my precious X-Men would appear in the pages, I don't think that I was eager to grab it. Not that I felt burned by Empire or anything, but I'm just coming off of Empire, followed immediately by Ten of Swords. So, it wasn't until I started listening to Rod and Juan's coverage of King in Black and the excitement they have for these characters. Not only am I a fan of King in Black now, but I've got gone back and I've read a number of the stories that I skipped the first time around and I find there's a lot more to mine from this than I thought and connections all over the Marvel Universe whether it's to Gore the God Butcher in the pages of Jason Aaron's Thor or it connects back to the brand new day Spidey Brain Trust which I read some of. You know there's a lot of excitement here for new fans and old fans and I just want to thank Juan for coming out and spending the time with us and helping us cover this exciting story with Rod. And our next episode, the Platinum Dazzler Awards, is going to drop on the 1st of 2021. So guys, from everybody here at X's for Podcast, I can't thank you enough for our year of most growth, most change, and most exciting X stories in a really long time. It's been incredible, and we'll see you guys in 2021 for the Platinum Dazzler Awards. Hello, and welcome to the next segment of X's for Pod. This is me rodders you can find me at rod comma the on twitter and instagram and i'm here with my fiance chongo hey everybody uh this is chongo and you can follow me at 
Chongo ATX. And today we're going to be talking about King and Black. King and Black. Issue two or dos, if you speak Spanish. So. Oh, he has a few drinks and I can speak Spanish. <laughs> I can speak a little Spanish. All right. So we're, getting, we're speaking of King and Black today. And we have been loving this, this event so far. This issue deals with more interpersonal character moments. Yeah. Then with more violence and action moments, like the first issue did. Yeah. Eddie Brock, he got the symbiote Venom taken away from him, and he was thrown from the building. If you read Venom, it explains what Eddie goes through when he's falling. Basically, um, it was an issue of him just falling. Yeah. The whole issue was him falling, and it's a whole, like, oh, this is what happens when your life flashes before your eyes. Yeah. But it wasn't really like his life flashed before his eyes. Not really. Because it was like you got like a look back at the other dude, like the yeah. dude from uh, Venom. Yeah. And from like the first issue of Venom, I actually think. Uh, not the first issue, but it's definitely close to the first issue. And so that's basically what it is. It's like, I wouldn't say it's not important, but it's not necessary for you to read for this next issue. Like it's, it's character growth. It's character growth. Like, if you if you care about Eddie's character growth, which I think you should, because I love it. You want to read it, but if you don't... Sad boys be sad. Sad boys be sad. But if you don't care, then you don't read it. But anyway, we open with Eddie crashing down on a symbiotic car. So he, like, is basically almost dead. And, like, Spider-Man finds him. He's like, oh my gosh, it's Eddie. And Noah's, like, sighs. Why can't I just kill the fool? Like... How hard is it to kill Eddie? Like, honestly, how hard is it to kill Eddie? But he didn't stop himself a few times before falling. So that's mm-hmm. why he didn't die. Like, it, it makes sense. The thing is, like, Eddie is supposed to be the person that you're, like, rooting for. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much Spider-Man is always, like, you're the knockoff version of me. And you're a pain in the ass. And why can't I get rid of you? He still cares for Eddie. And actually, I like that because, like, their friendship developed a lot more after Absolute Carnage. So he cares for Eddie a little bit. Well, yeah. And, yeah, he definitely cares for Eddie, especially since Eddie has a child. And he sees that Eddie... He sees that Eddie has, like, a sensitive, more caring side to him rather than just be, like, Venom side, bully side to him, you know? And then the next thing is we see the actual people that got sucked up by the dragon symbiotes actually be controlled by Noel. Which is like Cyclops, Captain America, She-Hulk, The Thing, Miss Marvel, and Storm. Yeah, they're all nullified. They are nullified. And they're about to, they're about to like kick the shit out of like LeBron, uh, like Brock LeBron. and Super uh, and LeBron Spider-Man. James. Where is he? <laughs> Brock and <laughs> Spider-Man. And then Johnny Storm comes in, and as you know, Johnny Storm and Spider-Man have a, a like a good friendship. So yeah, that really more than a friendship. More than a friendship. It's hinted that they they have had some lover situations in the past, but it's not actually canon. So, you know, people can speculate. It's my brain. I mean, I would love it. But yeah, like, Johnny Storm, like, comes in and he's like, hey, Spidey, I'll cover you. You go take Eddie Brock to go get healed. And Johnny's like, I'm going to go supernova. But the thing is, anytime Johnny goes supernova, he passes out. So this is, like, essentially Johnny's, like, Hail Mary so that he can let Spidey get away. Yeah, a big explosion happens, which we know doesn't... Badoosh. Which, which doesn't affect Null or the Null dragons because the big explosions in the sky don't really affect them. 
But well, it, but Barb it, doesn't know Spider Man. Yeah, but it allows Spider Man and Eddie carrying Spider Man to, to run away. So Spider Man takes him and gets Eddie to a facility where the Avengers are, to, and they're you know they're trying to treat Eddie, and then Valkyrie Jane Foster is there, and you know she's Valkyrie. She's the only Valkyrie at the moment, and you know she sees when someone is at death. So she sees this big ball of death around Eddie. She's like, well... Death, it's like literally a skull looking down at Eddie and his... Essentially his deathbed. Yeah. So we're led to assume that this is probably his last moments. Probably. Like this... If we don't know any better, if this might be the last issue of Eddie Brock. Maybe. Maybe. We know that Eddie tells Spidey to go protect Dylan. Yes. That Dylan is the key to it all. So Spidey has to go find Dylan. But in the meantime, Dylan's watching the TV and he realizes that Eddie was down and out for the count. He, I think he saw Eddie get his symbiote ripped out. He saw Eddie get his symbiote ripped out. I think what we didn't see is like them take Eddie to the Avengers hideout and have them put him in a spare room where he's hiding oh. out. We're not telling him anything because he's a kid. So he's playing video games, waiting it out. Spider-Man comes. And Spider-Man's a down-to-earth guy. So he came to tell him, he's like, hey, like, your father's dead. He's like, damn. His father's dead? No. Well, he says... He told him your dad, we don't know how he Well, he he says we don't know if he's dead or not. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I spoke to him. He's like, by the way, your dad's dead. Follow me. Well, okay. I spoke too soon. His dad isn't dead yet. Fucking spoilers. His his dad isn't dead yet, but he's on lot, basically life support, and they're trying to figure out a way to save him. So it's like, okay, let's let's get this move on. So we go to the area where all like the key Avenger type people that are still left are talking, like Black Panther, Mister Fantastic, Sue Storm, Blade, and Blade is talking to a holographic image of Xavier and Magneto. Okay, let's break it down. This is a scene. That everyone in X Twitter has an issue with. I was actually what's gonna, happening. I was actually going to talk about that. Okay, what's happening? I was going to talk about that. So, okay, so a lot of X Twitter had a problem with how, it, like, how Manito was talking, and they called it um, a lot of problems with that. And with Manito, I feel like would act, actually act like this Hold because. On. Hold on. Okay, you be Blade because you're black. I'll be okay. Magneto because I'm not Jewish. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. I, that doesn't... Okay. Okay. So, I'll, okay. so, I'll read Blade. I said, listen, we have nothing but more bodies for Noel. Wait, he's British. Can I do a British accent? He's, he took... Okay. Listen, we have nothing but Noel and his armies unless the X-Men and then Xavier cuts. And he says, we have already lost too many of our kind helping you, Blade. Now, we can help formulate a plan together, but... And then Blake cuts in. Are you insane? You know how many people you could have saved, or saved, if you just opened your gates and... Lead an infinite army of darkness into our lands to open our borders so that our people can... There is no your people anymore, says Blade. Manito, this thing is coming for everyone. So, I... Under- I love like- what you said says Blade, like... You were Blade, so I don't well, know why you said Well, I wanted to let the audience know that Blade was saying that. We didn't mm-hmm. really have a cut in. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, a lot of people have said that Magneto was out of characterness. But, if you think about it, Jean, Storm, Cyclops, Young Cable, and Nightcrawler, and I forget who else, 
was captured already by Noel and nullified. So those are our top people already captured. So Magneto would be like, hey, we he would be agitated and be like, hey, we can't send any more of our top mutants, people that are actually on our quiet council, hmm. to this thing. Okay, it's not saying we can't send any more of our top mutants. It's saying we are not exposing ourselves to be invaded. Our utopia, our land, our owned island is not going to expose itself to be attacked. I'm like, first of all, the X-Men and the Avengers don't have the best relationship. No. So what makes you think that Blade telling the X-Men or the mutants that they need to open up their lands so that they can help this issue? Does that make sense to you? I mean, I think it's both. I mean, I think it's both of them saying, hey, both like our top mutants that are on the Quiet Council and our X-Men have been taken by this entity. And we don't allow non-mutant representatives on our island for safety reasons. So it's a double like pro quo saying, hey, we already sent our top guys to help you. And we don't allow more non-mutants on our island because we have had so many people destroy mutant people. So they're trying to still help. But they don't want to allow refugees on the island of Krakoa because then that would make no sense for the idea of Krakoa itself. So I think the 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 way Xavier and Magneto were portrayed was correct in this instance. I think Magneto has every right to say, bitch, I don't owe you nothing. Exactly. I don't owe you nothing. Guess what? Where were you guys when we were fucking dying? Exactly. Like, I, honestly, like, I understand him getting excited. And I don't understand that people don't, like... Understand that he gets excited. Yes, he stays as cool with, like, diplomats and everything, but this is a world-happening event. And people, the top X-Men, the top mutants have already been taken. Like, Gene and Storm have already been taken. So, those are Omega-level mutants that have already been taken. Top people of the Krakoa. So, of course, he's going to have a little bit agitated. And even if you look at the image, Xavier's a little bit agitated. So, anyway, we know that's been established. We know that's right. We know that that's, like, actual factual happening. Moving on, we see... Well, Spider-Man's asking if anyone knows how Eddie's condition is. And they're like, no, there's been no change. Obviously, um, they would have said anything if anything would have happened. Black Panther's like, hey, Wakanda's got your back, guys. Wakanda will help in any way that's necessary, which is great. Awesome. We haven't seen that yet. Hopefully, we'll get to that. Blade's talking about bringing in some other guys, which... Who could he be talking about? We don't Namor see Namor shows up. No, because Blade is definitely not talking about Namor. Because we see, no. we see in the not in the next page, but next week after that, Blade definitely does not like Namor. Like, like honestly, no I, one in this room likes Namor. No one like so, Sue Storm. I, no one in this room likes Namor. Well, maybe Xavier too. Xavier kind of leaves. Like, he's not technically in the room. But no one likes Namor except Sue Storm, and because Namor's arrogant. He is arrogant for a reason, because humans destroy the ocean. And the thing is, also, it's been retroactively placed that Nemor and Noel have some history. Yeah, that's why he has a time. Because when you think about the darkness and depths of space and whatnot, it's an allegory for the <laughs> darkness and depths of the ocean. Obviously, Namor's the king of, where he's had his issues with his own people, where King of Black is supposed to be having his own hold of. But uh, yeah, so apparently Sue invited Namor 
And who do you think who's that gonna make happy? Well, I mean, Sue. I don't. I think Sue and Iron Man. Like we get, and you knew that Sue and Iron Man came together, or at least decided to divide Namor, because we see later that Tony Stark knew that Namor had a deep, dark abyss, mystic power army people down, locked up that they could help us. They might be evil, but they could help Earth because an enemy of the, my enemy is my friend. The Black Tide. The Black Tide. So they might be the enemy of. You know, Atlantis and Earth people, but if an, a solar entity that is evil is attacking the Earth they live on, they will protect it, you know? And then we see that Blade is going to Dracula, which we saw in, you know, the Avengers. So you're just going to, like, so softball that in? Really? Well, really? Well, <laughs> okay, so Blade <laughs> goes to fucking Dracula to try to get him to help them. Well, no, Dracula, same Dracula that went to war with Morbius and the Avengers okay, but no. is coming to the aid. Okay, but Iron Man, Tony Stark said, we're going to have to talk to people that we don't agree with. Namor's talking to the black, whatever, what is it called? Mantle? I told you. You should listen. Okay, the, the whatever people that he got away a long time ago. What is it called? Black Tide. Black Tide. He's gonna have to get them, Racist. and then <laughs> I'm black, so first of all, and then Blade is gonna have to go get Dracula. They're all getting their oppositions, and then they are all contacting Kingpin, which is the mayor of New York, to help the villains help them take over Knoll. They're all helping. They're all contacting the villains of different sanctions to help them save the Earth, and then Iron Man goes. To try to take over one of the many Venom or Null dragons. Why? Do you know why? Yes, because he wants to find a symbiote for Eddie Brock so he can mm-hmm. try to mess with Null. Yeah, and what, what does he put in that dragon? He he puts <laughs> he puts in something. He puts in something? He puts in got something. A name. I'm going to look. He puts in, I invented an extremist. No, puts, it's called extremist. He put he, the extremist serum into the dragon, the Grendel, Thank so you. he can try to take over I it know. and oh amputate it from Noel's control. Yes, I know. So that they can use that symbiote yes. piece to put into Eddie so Eddie can heal yes. and Eddie can have another. I know. Is it that easy? No, it's not easy. Why? And Because Noel's power over them. No, right? why? Because the Grendel is not Venom. It's not the Venom symbiote. It's not the Venom He's symbiote. only got connection with no no he's only got connection with two symbiotes that we've known of and it's venom and anti-venom those are yes. the only two symbiotes that he's but I'm ab- only about ab- able the, to fuse with yes so the dragon is hard to get with because it's controlled by no and no is the the emperor. well no it's a corrupted symbiote yeah it's the, it's not his symbiote yes so that's like me being like oh Put on this shoe. This shoe's yours. And you're like, well, I'm a size 14. This is a size 10. It doesn't matter. It's a shoe. Just put on the shoe. Yes. Yes. And that's what we're thinking. Like, Iron Man is very smart, but he doesn't get that a symbiote isn't like any other symbiote. It is a, he is trying to get a symbiote that's already controlled by Noel that is influenced and corrupted by Noel. So he thinks putting in and corrupting his DNA that he's like manufactured because he's a mad scientist will affect it enough so he can do it to Eddie. So he goes to Eddie that's like in a in a coma right now and tries to put it in him. And then Dylan notices that the the symbiote is corrupted enough 
that Tony Stark did not fix it. And Dylan's like, stop, wait, no, don't do this. During this whole time, during this whole time of them trying to fuse this symbiote to Venom or to Eddie, you see that Eddie's heart rate is going kind of crazy. And the symbiote starts freaking out and like not wanting to fuse with him. And no one is listening to Dylan. No one has been listening to Dylan. Well, First of all, Eddie hasn't been listening to Dylan. Well, okay. Nobody's uh, been Dylan. Don't, li- okay. If, if we learned anything, from event from Champions Outlaw, adults don't listen to children. And Dylan is a child. Dylan is a very powerful symbiotic slash human child, which they don't know about yet. The only listen. person that but really knows that Dylan is this strong is Eddie. No, is the maker. Not even Eddie. Well the maker, yeah. The maker is literally the only person that knows how to Where is the maker at this point, honestly? Isn't that the fucking gag of the fucking like, century? I feel like, honestly, I feel like after a King of Black event, the next arc for Venom is going to be the Maker. No. The thing is, the Maker is going to have to come into this. I don't... Maker, no. I don't think... I No. No. <laughs> that's no, cute. That's no, cute. no. No. Let me hear what you think. No. Let me hear shut what you up. Think. Shut up. I don't think... I think Dan, Donny Cates is... The whole thing with the maker. The whole thing with Donny Cates that he did with the maker before this King of Like event with the whole like portal and everything. Mm -hmm. I think the maker is going to have a big arc with Eddie and his symbiotes after this. I don't think he's going to have a thing really in King and Black. I think it's gonna be after. Okay, now let me give you something that from someone who actually knows comic books and knows the story. Oh my god! Okay, so the maker still has symbiotes. I know that he still knows the control of the symbiotes. He's been able to control the symbiotes. Do you know whose symbiote he still has? Who he still has anti venom. I know. Like I'm not saying he won't, but. Why would he not come into this? I'm saying because he, you have not read Rick Remender's Venom, have you? I'm not. Shut up. I'm not, <laughs> have you read Rick Remender's Venom? Look, we're not talking about that right now. No, no, I'm because saying. it's important. Because it is important. Because anti venom has the ability to cure I symbiotes. Know. I know that from my own research. I'm saying. Your research? I shut up. I'm saying that I think. That I I don't think that you think you don't think <laughs> I don't think the maker will appear in this because the maker is a great villain and I think he'll make an even greater arc after this event. Nah, nah. I think he Donny Case is waiting for to use him more after this event. That would make the most logical sense because you don't want too much in one event. Okay, so let me tell you what I know. Two things: Donny Kate loves the maker. How do I know this? Because when we were at a con, I asked him about the Maker's role in his Venom run. I know. And he said the Maker has a big role. That's what I'm saying. He's going to be Second. after. No, no, no. Second. Yeah. When we asked Donnie in a live feed, how does Ravencroft interact with all of this? He said Ravencroft and then did not say anything but smiled, meaning that Ravencroft has a lot to do with this. And right now, one person working at Ravencroft is the Maker. So you're trying to tell me that the Maker isn't going to be big in this I story mean, technically, seems kind of dumb to me. The Maker was not working at Ravencroft. 
He was not working at Ravenclaw. It was Misty Knight and the Werewolf guy. No, no, no. It is now. He is now working at Ravencroft because there's nothing but villains now working at Ravencroft. But at the end of Ravencroft, it was destroyed. It don't get destroyed. It doesn't get destroyed, Rodney. (laughs) Okay, all fine. Do you even read comic books? So, anyway, Norman Osborn and Kingpin are in charge of Ravencroft. And they are going to have big things coming up. So, like, I honestly hope that makes an appearance. But I understand if it doesn't make an appearance in King Black, because if Johnny Case makes more of, like, a maker in the Ravencroft arc after King Black and make it even more sinister and more, like, crazy than King Black is, because King Black's already crazy, then I understand that because it makes for a good story, you know? But as we see in King and Black, getting back to the main story that we're talking about, the main issue, we see that Dylan destroys the corrupted symbiote that Iron Man, Tony Stark, tried to bring to Eddie to bring him back to life or bring him out of, you know, a coma. And Ed and um, Dylan, like, destroys it, uses psychic energy, his psychic symbiotic energy to destroy it. And they all realize, oh my God, Dylan. You have a secret, you have a power, you have a, you are a secret, and, and even Reed Richards like, you are a secret weapon, oh my god, and then like, Sue's like, Reed, calm down, like, like, look, look what's happening, and we see that Eddie Brock, his, um, his beeper thing, what's it called? The E, the E, <laughs> what is that called? The thing that manages his heart rate? What is that called? EKG. The EKG, beep! It's one line. He flatlines. He flatlines, and Eddie Brock is dead. And we see Dylan say, Dad? With a question mark. And Eddie Brock is dead. And then we see later what Eddie Brock is thinking once he, in Venom 32, which is going to happen in Venom 32, um, what Eddie Brock thinks once he crashes in the car, which is the beginning of the episode. And he's thinking, you know, when he hears a voice, and he hears a voice what he heard before in the earlier Venom, you know, issues. And then he hears something calling out to him and saying, Brock. And then he, then it stops. And then it says, look for King and Black number three. And King and Black number three is going to happen next year. And I am so excited for it. Because this issue did one of the things that I most love about events, which is give us characters they interact with each other that don't usually interact with each other. Like, that's my favorite thing in events. Like, you know, we get a lot of characters in their own stories, like Avengers, Thor, Daredevil, Champions, etc., etc. You know, they stay in their own little world. But in this event, they all kind of come together, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, who would have thought we would have get a scene with Blade talking to Xavier and Magneto? Like, no matter what you think of that panel, that's kind of awesome. So I love that this event gave that to us. And I love that this event is doing. I love that this issue, issue number two, gave us more in-depth detail of what everyone is feeling more than just the action of what the number one gave. Because the number one gave us like zero to 100. And then this one kind of gave us like 50 to 80 and more of interaction with character development and more of how they're going to plan to beat Null. Basically, this one set the stage. This one set the stage. It added more players to the field. Exactly. And it kind of set up like, okay, we have a defensive strategy. We're bringing in people from left field to help with this. 
By the way, you totally skimmed over the fact that they mentioned Squadron Supreme again. I did skip that, yeah. And we have yet to see Squadron Supreme in any fucking event book, even though they were supposed to have tie-ins to Empire and now King and Black. Yeah, if you didn't know Squadron Supreme, they're heroes that have come from different realities to come be a group of heroes in the Marvel 616. And Coulson, who is brought back to life by Mephisto, mm-hmm. by the, and is with the government now, ha- is the leader of Supreme uh, Supreme Squadron. Squadron Supreme. Squadron Supreme. And is like the heroes of America. No, so he's basically controlling them and manipulating them to be the heroes of America because he believes that the Avengers are now under acting under Black well, Panther's control. Wakanda's Wakanda's Avengers. Yeah. So he's like, oh, who's going to protect our country if you're too busy protecting your own? Yeah. So basically, they made Coulson very like xenophobic. Yeah. Which makes sense if Mephisto's controlling him because Mephisto is literally like the devil. Which is like manifesting hate, which makes sense. So I'm glad that they touch on the Scottish Supreme because no one else basically has except for the Avengers, which introduced it. But are we going to get the time? Well, no, and, well, we it might. Was well, we might. No, it was canceled. It was canceled. But we might see them in the ish, in the, in the series in the event. And also, we saw them in um, Taskmaster yeah. by Jed McKay. I'm glad that they got mentioned. At least that means that it matters. Yeah. And yeah. So now the buildup is on. So what do you think going on from here? What's going to happen? What's going to happen is, well, you know, Eddie's dead. Eddie is, is legally Quote unquote, dead. Well, that's what I'm saying. Eddie Brock is legally dead. He flatlined. That means you are legally dead. I want you, him to be illegally dead. Yeah, no, I mean, like, okay, so we already know that A. Brock is going to come back because we've seen solicits of his future Venom. No, we saw a sad guy walking away. It could be his soul walking away. No, no, but we saw solicits of him shooting his laser beam symbiote lasers. Shooting his laser beam lasers? Yeah, and one of the solicits in Venom, like, 24 or something like that. Twenty-four. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's gonna come next. Like we've seen a solicit; it has a happen to. It's gonna come next year. So we know Eddie at least is not gonna, is gonna come back or is hinted to come back. But we also know that King of Black is going to have consequences because Donnie Case himself, Don, Donnie Case himself, has said that King of Black is crazy and that it's gonna have a lot of people like dying, which is also which so far has had you know Century and Eddie Brock died. Which is truly two major characters in the Marvel Universe. Because Sentry's been around forever, and Eddie Brock has been around forever, and they're technically dead right now. So we have two major deaths so far. Now, do we know if the Sentry's going to come back? Probably, because comic books. And Eddie Brock's going to come back? Maybe. Maybe. Because Flash Thompson hasn't come back yet. So will Eddie Brock come back? We don't know. We do not know. I hope he does, because that'd be awesome. But we will see. Now... With the cover page that's for King of Black number three, we see Thor, Odin's son, battling Noel. So Thor finally makes an appearance in King of Black, which you know Thor has been preoccupied in his own series, fighting his alter ego. So we will see how that transforms into him appearing in King of Black. Because that's why he hasn't been in the picture so far, because he's been dealing with his alter ego. So yeah. So, I mean, what did you think about the second issue? It was way better than the first. So, okay. So, I'm not going to say it was way better. I think it was just as good. Honestly. I feel like it kept the pace. It kept me interested. 
And I still feel like it was a 10 out of 10 for me because I'm still like, I want to know like, okay, for events for me, if I still want to know what happens in the next issue, then that's a 10 for 10 for me. And that's how I felt with the first issue. And that's how I felt with this issue. So I still want to know what happens in King Like Number Three. So it's a ten and ten for me. So I love this issue. So that means every comic book's a ten for ten for you because no. if you want to know what happens, every no, issue. that's not that's not the case. Now I'm not going to talk about what comics I don't like, but not every comic makes me want to learn what happens next. I give this a solid eight out of ten. The reason I gave it a solid eight out of ten is because yes, it's giving us more players on the board. Yes, it's developing more of the story, and now we're actually seeing more of the players, and we're actually having conversations about the threat, and it's also diving into Dylan and his participation in the story. However, there was no Noel, really. That No, that is actually, now that I think about it, I did think about that earlier, but I forgot about this point. That is why I would actually probably give it a 9 out of 10. Because I actually thought about that earlier and I was like, we got maybe two panels of Noel in this whole entire issue of King and Black. I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, that's I'm like, okay, so this whole event, this is the main event issue. Number two, King and Black. And we had King and Black in two panels for the whole issue. Yeah. Now, that's why I'd probably give it maybe an eight or a nine out of ten. <laughs> Shut I love up. how each time Shut your up. rating keeps going down. Shut up. I'm trying to be I'm trying to be I'm trying to be very like fair. Bias. No, I'm or trying to be fair. I'm trying, partisan or fair, whatever. Because I forgot that I was thinking about that. Like, hey, yeah, this is called King and Black. And Noel appeared in two panels. Yeah. Like, and now and now and I'm saying I understand that Noel appeared in almost all the panels in the last issue. And Donnie was trying to give the, like, you know, in this issue, all of the characters a moment to, like, reflect and plan. The, this was the breathing moment. This was a breathing moment. But, however, for me personally, I think um, once Dylan used his powers, we should have had a moment of King and Black, or Noel, should have been like, ah, I see you. I know where yes. you're at. Yes. Because Dylan using his power, because Dylan has a connection to Noel. And the yes. fact that he used his power to not only wipe out a symbiote, but a wipe out a Grendel dragon symbiote yes. that is connected to Noel. The fact that that didn't trigger something in Noel to be like, I found you. Yeah. Now, we don't know if Noel doesn't sense that in the next issue. But that would have been a great cliffhanger. That would have been the better cliffhanger. That would have been a better cliffhanger instead of instead of Captain America and Iron Man being like, oh my god, no, Captain America and and um, Mister Fantastic being no wait, Iron Tony Stark, Jesus, Tony Stark, Mister Fantastic being like, oh my god, you have you know powers and you know your dad is dead being a cliffhanger. Better being Noel being like, oh my god, you have I sense um, Dylan being a cliffhanger. Because that, yeah, I honestly agree. That would have been the better flipping, and that's why I said maybe an eight or a nine, probably an eight. Because in a in a, an event, now I, I do like this event, but in an event called literally King and Black, in the second issue, we only see the actual King and Black in two panels. It does kind of leave you hanging. Now, I do, like I said, I love that we give character interaction. That's one of the things I love. Like I said, in events. So that's why I said I love this event so, like this issue so much because it's one of the things I love about events. 
Mm-hmm. But I would like to see the main villain more. Now, we do have three more issues. Um, For me, another thing that made it an 8 out of 10 is the inconsistency of Dylan's age. Considering Ryan Stegman is the lead artist in this, and he's been the lead artist in Venom, um, Dylan seemed a lot older in this issue. Where before he looks like a, a young boy, like a preteen. Mm-hmm. This one, he looks more like a teenager. Well, did he, he look like? Older. Did he look like a preteen in King of Black though? In the first issue? No, he looked because like a kid. Yeah. I don't think he looks that old. Dylan was at least like twelve, about to turn thirteen, and now he's fourteen. He looks at least fourteen years old in this issue. I like that. Essentially, this issue was to set up the side stories. Like, you got Valkyrie talking about her story about having to lead Sentry to Valhalla. Yeah. Um, so you know that she's about to have her thing. Yeah. This story the, definitely the, left, like, more one, like, the tie-in to be more important. Like, Namor's and Valkyrie's and Spider-Man's and everything. Namor actually has some weight to his issues now. And this leads into the Thunderbolt story as well, which is really nice because I wanted to know how the Thunderbolts tied into all of this. And this issue does a really good job of doing that. Um, but moving on from here, I know issue three is supposed to have a bunch of crazy intense art in it because Ryan Stigma said um, that issue three is the hardest he's ever worked at doing art for a book. Uh, and that it's got some of the craziest scenes he's ever done in his career. One of the tie-ins I'm really looking forward to is Thunderbolts because the the character Kelly Thompson made Star is in it, and I think she's gonna I think she's gonna have a really that character's gonna have a really good time battling Noah the dragons in Thunderbolts. Yeah, because she has a reality that her power is a reality stone right now. Yeah. So I guess it'll be fun to look yeah. at. She's got the reality stone, and actually, that's a really crazy team. Yeah. And that's uh, Matthew Rosenberg on that story. Matthew Rosenberg really, like, writes really well with the villains. Yeah. And I didn't know that you, like, I'm glad that you said that. I didn't know that Ryan Stegman said that issue three of King of Black was the hardest he's ever drawn for an issue that makes me really excited because like so far and king of black and venom in general the ones he's, that he's drawn have been really spectacular mm-hmm. and if he's saying that king of black number three which is the middle of like the, the event mm-hmm. which is mostly when the shit goes down is the hardest he's ever drawn is amazing i love that i can't predict something that's gonna happen i'm yep. i'm excited for something that's gonna happen when i can't honestly predict it mm-hmm. 